You're listening to Live Law, real stories about the law told live. I'm Nancy Mullane. This week's story is from Patrice Gaines. Patrice is a veteran journalist and writer. She spent 16 years at the Washington Post. But in the summer of 1970, Patrice was in jail in North Carolina. Her charge? Possession of heroin with intent to distribute, a felony. She was just 21 years old and only spent a few weeks in jail. But now she was a convicted felon and would be for the rest of her life. Here's Patrice. In 2009, I was 60 years old and I was in need of a part-time job. I earn a living as a motivational speaker, a life coach, an editor, a writer, and I run a nonprofit that runs workshops in the Charlotte jail for women. But I needed more income. So when the US Census Bureau came to my neighborhood to recruit for part-time field workers, I showed up at my neighborhood library to take the test. And my neighborhood is mostly white Republicans. In fact, at the time that I moved there, which wasn't really that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, I was the only black person in the neighborhood of about 1,100. (laughs) Never thought I'd end up there, but anyway. So when I go to the library to take the test, there's me and all my white neighbors. And um, after taking the test, um, the chief recruiter announces that uh, someone in the room made 100. And I bet it was the doctor. I didn't know who the hell the doctor was. (laughs) And I didn't care. I just wanted to know what I had gotten on my test because I knew that I needed a job. So we lined up to pick up our corrected papers. And when I got in front of the guy and got mine, he said, much too loud for my liking, so you're the one that got the 100. And everybody turned to stare at me. And I was more embarrassed than proud. And I only tell you the score because it's important considering the way things evolved. For the next two weeks, I was trained by the US Census Bureau, um, which meant that I would go out into this rural area near my South Carolina home. And I would make sure that addresses were correct on the records for the people that would go out to take the 2010 census. And with the area that I went in, well, first of all, for two weeks I took the training, and then afterwards we took another test. And at the last minute, something told me to change one answer. So I missed 100 by one answer. That answer I changed at the last minute. But it didn't matter, because I got hired. And. I spent the next couple of days out in this rural area, and it was the kind of area where you would drive down these long dirt roads and generally find a wood frame house in need of of repair. And I was be in my car skirting around farm animals and get out and get chased by chickens and uh, spend some time waiting for the rain to slow down so that I could get out and do the work. And I get to this, about on the third day, I get to this place. I'm facing this beat-up trailer. 
And uh, it's surrounded by thick brush, and there's these motorcycles outside. And there's also attached to it the largest Confederate flag I have ever seen in my life. And so I can't see their address because of this flag. And I know I got to get out the car and go up to the door and find out what their address is. So I get out the car and I realize I'm petrified because I look at that flag and I think of the racist, violent history of the South and I see black men hanging from trees and white men wearing white sheets and an angry mob yelling at college students who would dare to try to integrate a lunch counter. And I know that this is a rational fear, but it paralyzes me. Because it seems to say to me that as a black person, my life is in danger. And yet, because of the life I've lived, I understand the pain that can be caused by unforgiveness and harsh judgment. And so I don't want to live a life where I believe that just because someone flies a Confederate flag that they support that history, that I make these unfounded assumptions about people. I don't want to live like that. So I'm determined that I'm going to go up and knock on this door. And so my legs are a little wobbly, but I go up, and I knock, and I knock, and I knock. And no one answered. And I ran back to my car. <laughs> As I say, I grabbed that doorknob like a kid tagging home base, and I hopped in that car. <laughs> and I was backing up when my phone rang. And it was my supervisor. And she said, Patrice, I got a phone call from the headquarters in Columbia, South Carolina. I don't understand it, but they told me to immediately take all of our government equipment from you and send you home. And I said, I think I understand exactly what's happening here. Now, I had answered every question on that applica application correctly. So, I guess they're just a little slow in their checking. <laughs> I told her that I was pretty sure that what had happened was that they had found that I had a criminal record. That 39 years ago at that time, I had been charged with possession of heroin with, with intent to distribute and possession of a needle and syringe. I had pled guilty and I became a convicted felon. And she actually laughed and she said, he couldn't be anything that old. And I said, oh yes, it could be. And so I went home and the next day when I was away from the house, my sister said that the supervisor came by and she was still apologizing when she picked up that old stupid handheld computer and that useless badge. And that she said, indeed I was right that it was my criminal record. And um, I was furious. <laughs> I was furious because it didn't matter that I made 100 on a test or that I, if I missed one answer. I was furious because it had been almost four decades since I had committed a crime, that I had raised a good child who had a nice job and did community work. 
I have written two books and been a reporter at the Washington Post. None of this mattered at all. So I called a friend of mine who had contacts in the White House. And he made some calls, and he called me back, and he said, well, President Obama said, instructed everybody at the Census Bureau that a person should not automatically be fired because they had a criminal record, that each case should be taken individually. And I said, well, South Carolina didn't get the memo. <laughs> About two weeks later, I got an official letter from the U.S. Census Bureau apologizing and inviting me back to take my job. But I didn't want the stinking job. <laughs> because before their letter came, I got a letter from the Soros, uh, from the <laughs> Foundation, saying I had gotten a Soros Justice Media Fellowship that ironically was gonna pay me for a year to research and write a series of articles about the impact of incarceration on the black community. <laughs> I have to tell you though that I am still furious. I am furious for those people who get out of prison every day, who don't have friends with contacts at the White House and who still have to search for, search for a job. I'm furious that I'm expected to get over my fear of a flag that represents violence against black people to me when America won't forgive me for something that I did 39 years ago. But I learned something very important on that day when I was confronted with my own fear. And I, I learned how paralyzing fear can be. And I learned, in fact, to be compassionate for people who have other fears, such as the fear that someone who, someone who has committed a crime is a personal threat to you, or that they should, can't change or should be locked away forever. However, I strongly believe that we owe it to each other to not stay paralyzed. Patrice Gaines told her story at a recent Live Law show in Albuquerque. Be sure to check out our sister podcast, Life of the Law, featuring investigative reports on the law in our lives. Next week on Life of the Law... <laughs> First of all, they are not natural parents in Thai society. They are same-sex, not like male and female, that can take care of baby. Second thing is, when I try to contact them to visit the baby, they didn't want to talk to me. And the third thing is, I was begging them to see the baby, but they didn't allow me to see her. They treat me very badly. That's next week on Life of the Law. You can hear our feature reports and our live law stories at infiniteguests.org or search for us on your favorite podcast app. Live Law is a production of Life of the Law and is produced by Mary Adkins and Jonathan Hirsch. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>